Uh, with that said, we're going to uh, jump back into our teaching today, which is from Ephesians chapter 6. Our, our summer teaching is entitled Standing Firm. And in these verses over the past month, we have been examining this, this military metaphor about putting on the armor of God. Paul talks about this. He says that this is one of the ways he, you, he describes this metaphor as being the thing we do that can empower us to follow Jesus faithfully for all of the days of our lives. And what's important about this text, I mentioned this last week and I'm going to say it again, is that the language he uses is literally evoking the language of a captain on the battlefield commanding their troops to put on their armor and prepare for the great charge on the field of life. There's this intertwining of, of the urgency of military, of military sort of success, a, a primary objective, something very important that has to take place for there to be victory. And he uses this same type of analogy in how we no pun intended, have victory in our spiritual lives. And so as we continue on in our summer series, I want to point out that each piece of armor, we've looked at two thus far. The second one we're looking at today is the breastplate of righteousness. This is a continuation of what I talked about last week. Each piece of armor specifically speaks to a significant area of our hearts and life. And if we're faithful to put these truths on, he promises that they will help us to stand firm in the ways of Jesus, no matter what we face in life, and they will also help us stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. Three weeks ago, we talked about the primary scheme of the enemy, uh, whether it is directly through him or through the darkened systems of this world, is essentially to distort the truth. Uh, he's a master at taking what we know as truth and twisting it in a way to deceive us in understanding who we are and how valuable we are before Jesus. Such a master, although he failed in this attempt, I think the greatest example we have of this in the New Testament is when the enemy literally tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And there he's so subtly distorting truth that he's actually managed to take the truths of the Bible and twist them in ways to try to tempt Jesus into a life apart from his Father in heaven. And he obviously fails in that. And so the method of scheme is the same. We might say the root of it is the same. Its expression often looks different because we are different people. We all have different priorities and emphases in life. And so there's usually a contextualized scheme that is applied to our lives. But no matter what that is, Paul's pretty clear here that when we put on the armor of God, we can actually stand firm in the ways of Jesus. And so we looked at the, the belt, the buckle of truth, which simply was talking about the significance of undergirding our whole life with objective truth. And in the Christian life, objective truth stems uh, solely from the scripture meaning there is a God, we believe that, and we believe that his words are the right words, are the true words. And so while we want to have grace and diplomacy as we speak to people about them, and while we want to apply these in our lives with an equal amount of grace so that we don't ever feel like, you know, for example, how difficult it can be living up to God's truth, that's a very real emotion I think we can face. We want a lot of grace in all of this, but the bottom line is truth is important, and the Christian's life should be undergirded by it. And now we talk about a very specific element of truth, this breastplate of righteousness. That's what we began talking about last week. And last week we discussed that this is given to us to firmly stand against the problem of sin. There was a whole teaching on sin and how the, the righteousness of Jesus defeated it. I'm not going to touch on that today, but I certainly would encourage you to listen to that if you haven't. This is a standalone teaching, but certainly those truths will, will bring maybe a, a, a greater clarity to what we're talking about today. We firmly established that to really understand why we need the breastplate of righteousness, we had to first understand what the Bible teaches us about sin. And so today we're going to add another layer to that teaching by examining why putting on and understanding what the breastplate of righteousness accomplishes in our lives is so important. And this really leads me to the only truth that I want to share with you this morning. It's one truth, we'll look at it from various ways, but it's a, it's a simple truth deeply connected to what we talked about last week. To appreciate the righteousness of Jesus, we said last week, you have to understand what Jesus' righteousness deals with, the problem of sin. 
Once you truly understand the nature of sin, however, it should compel you and I to put on the breastplate of God's righteousness. The idea here is we should really value this, this piece of armor because it has a very significant effect in our lives. It plays a deeply important role in our lives. And I'll just retouch on Ephesians 6, 13 through 14. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, Paul tells us, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Now here the Bible tells us the only way to properly deal with the schemes of the enemy, with the evil of the world, with the root problem of sin, is to put on the breastplate of righteousness. It has a very particular application in our life. And if you know anything about military history, we, modern soldiers don't wear breastplates today, but they do wear body armor, which is a very similar tool. It's a, it's a greatly evolved tool, scientifically more developed, but it accomplishes the same thing. A, a breastplate in the ancient, ancient world was a significant piece of armor that uh, w- was in the soldier's arsenal because it protected a warrior's vital organs, the chief of which is the heart. Strike the heart, take out the warrior. And so physically speaking, if you were to attack anything in your vital organ area, it was almost immediately going to be death or, or a, a, a very quick death following. And so the idea was, take out the central part of a, of a soldier's body, you take the warrior out of the fight. Now there's an interesting parallel here, because spiritually speaking, Paul is using this military analogy to remind us of a very similar truth. That our hearts, this is a truth we have talked about regularly in this room, when the Bible speaks of the heart, it is talking about the control center of our lives. Our hearts dictate the values we have in life. Our heart dictates our priorities, our emotions, and our morality. The heart is the literal center of who we are as a people. And because of this, we've got to be super careful what we expose our hearts to. Because the heart, while it is, it's significant to who we are, it is also like a lump of clay. It is easily molded. And simply put, if we want to find the fullness of life in Christ, if we want to stand firm against the lies of the enemy we've talked about over these past weeks, if we want to free our hearts from the sin that can so easily entangle us and lead us astray from God, then what Paul says is we must clothe our hearts, our, our, the centerpiece of our life with the righteousness of God. Now this leads us to an interesting question. Last week we talked about righteousness. We began to define it and we talked about the problem of self-righteousness. We examined the Pharisees. The Pharisees were one of the greatest examples we have of a group of people, in many ways, distorting the truth of the Bible to the place where they believed it was what they did and who they were that merited some type of favor from God. That is the problem with self-righteousness. And we discussed how the breastplate of righteousness safeguards our heart from having to live in a performance-based religion, which is what that creates. The modernisms, particularly moralism and legalism, all came out of self-righteousness. It was sort of a desire to be favored by God without the grace of God in Christ. That is a problem. That's one side of the problem of of, of a misunderstanding of righteousness. Today, I want to ask another question, another interesting question, I think, anyways. What does God's righteousness in our life look like? What's the proactive side of this? How do we understand righteousness from an angle that it not only safeguards our heart from, from self-righteousness, but it allows us to live in peace and in harmony with God's plan for our lives? Well, there are a lot of good ways to define God's righteousness. Um, there are a lot of technical ways we can define it, but the one that has been most impactful for me over the years came from a teaching pastor I heard named Tim Keller years ago. I really respect this guy, and I've quoted him before. And he described the righteousness of God in a very simple but practical way. He described it as making us presentable to God. And so think of it like this. Try to recall a season in your life 
uh, when you were dating your spouse or a significant other. Maybe you, you're married right now, think about that season. Maybe you are dating somebody, think about that season. Maybe you would like to date somebody, think about all of the sort of unique, we might even say pressures associated with that season of life. Think about what it was like when you asked somebody out on that first date. Uh, you likely took that situation, that, that dynamic there pretty seriously. And what happens in the early days of any romantic relationship especially is people typically want to put their best foot forward. That's usually how it goes in the early days of dating. You tidy up a bit. You might put on your best clothes. You, know, you might get a haircut. You might do some things that really help you be presentable to a person. If you dated in the 90s like me, you probably put on a lot of cologne. That was very popular back in the day. You probably had a nice gold chain. And then some of you impeccably styled a mullet. There's no doubt about that, right? Um, I did not have a mullet. It was not my jam. But I want to be clear that we're a pretty tight-knit family here at Restoration. And I'm going to take a bet that somebody in this room had a mullet or at least somebody that knew somebody that had a mullet. It was a very popular thing, right? You, you do these things. You are sort of like in tune with the fashion of the day. You are trying to put your best foot forward. Now, my question is, why, why do we do this? A job interview. Why do we do something that might be a little irregular at the beginning of a job that we would not do in the middle of a job? Why do we clean up like this is the way I want to describe it. Well, it's because we want to be presentable. There's a very high stake in the early stages of those relationships. And when it comes to dating, we knew the person we were dating probably had some expectations. And maybe they were even unclear in those moments. So we just tried to do our best to make sure we were meeting them. And if we wanted to keep dating that person, to some degree, we believe we would have to live up to them. There's a relational incompatibility if that's not the case. And this is why it's common during the, the season of dating, especially the early season of dating, for people to really work hard to cover up their faults. It's kind of a fascinating psychology. Look at people. They really will try to, maybe in some senses, forget about some of the things that might be faults in their lives, even though we all have them. It could be a very pressured time in a relationship because there's a very high drive to want to see it succeed. And so this analogy of being made presentable to somebody else is a great example of how God sees us. If you really understand the Christian faith to be about two primary relationships, God's love, care, and affection for us, and our love, care, and affection for other people, everything in Christianity is rooted in some form of relationship, either between us and God or us and us. That's the way that I like to say this. And God clearly has relational expectations. The very origin of the Bible, even if you look at the Ten Commandments, God is beginning to lay out what he expects of his people. The Bible's pretty clear, no matter where you read it, that the relationship expectations God has of us are going to be much higher than we can actually ever accomplish on our own without him. In fact, they're so high, this is the problem of self-righteousness we talked about last week, they're so high that we actually cannot live up to them. And so if you value some form of self-righteousness, if you think you have to earn your favor from God, then what happens is you go the road of the Pharisee. And even if a Pharisee is, is honest, if, if they're honest, what they're going to recognize is you, can't, you cannot perfectly kill it every day with God. It doesn't happen. There are bad thoughts that come into our mind. We get frustrated with people. We can be angry. Maybe we even drift into, into to more problematic sins, right? If we live under that pressure, it likely crushes us. We embrace what I like to say is the performance-driven religion of the Pharisees. We spoke about that last week. The one difference here, though, about the way we present ourselves with God or to God, especially in a distinction from dating, is that with God, you, you actually can't cover up your faults. And there actually is something very freeing about that. We cannot polish the exterior of our lives to the place where, where God can't see the deep-rooted struggles of our heart, uh, to, to where we sort of think that if we can clean ourselves up enough, he's going to love us. We cannot do that because of the problem of sin, what we talked about last week. 
And so the hard truth here is that without Christ, without his grace, the reality is that we're not presentable before God. But the beauty of Jesus' gospel, the reason why we don't believe our faith is a pressure cooker of performance, is that we're actually, we actually don't have to be presentable to God on our own. It's not possible. Because Jesus, when he comes to earth and goes to the cross for us, becomes presentable for us. It's one of the great blessings of knowing why Jesus loves you and some of the great things that he's done for us. He becomes presentable for us in a way so that we can actually learn to love God without the pressure of thinking we have to earn the love of God. Now, the clearest biblical definition we have of God's righteousness and why we need it is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is a very pointed verse, and I'll mention it again in my conclusion this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. It'll be behind me. God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a pretty profound verse. I want to read it again. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great old hymns, they talk about this being the double cure. God takes our sin and gives us his righteousness in Jesus. And this verse teaches us that we are not able to clothe ourselves in our own righteousness. That's what this verse tells us. And that is why God, right next to this verse, in his infinite grace, makes a way for us to be righteous in Jesus. We become the righteousness of God because of Jesus' great gift on the cross. He makes Jesus, who has no sin, to become sin for us. And what's beautiful about this is that the reason Jesus is our Savior, one of the reasons anyways, is because he becomes our substitute. He actually takes the penalty of sin for us in our place. And the question is, why does he do this? Well, according to 2 Corinthians, he does this so that we might become presentable to God once again, so that God can look at our lives and see the righteousness of Christ in us. That is fundamentally what it means, one of the great benefits anyways, blessings of the gospel, is that when we trust in him, not only are our sins placed on him, but his righteousness is actually given to us. The value and status of who Jesus is, his righteous life is given to us. We become like him, according to 2 Corinthians. And so the only way to be truthful about the fact that we are sinners, what we talked about last week, I think the reason we can proclaim this with a humble confidence, the only way to to be able to say sin is a problem in the world and we deal with this and still remain standing in the face of the spiritual schemes of the enemy, which aim to crush us with the guilt and shame often associated with sin. Think about that. This is the distortion point. As Jesus says, I've come to take your sin away. But the, the enemy would like to convince us that we still live under the, the authority of that. And we would love to use great problems like shame and guilt to keep us from experiencing the freedom of Jesus. What we learn here is that we can actually be free from those things because the breastplate of righteousness protects our hearts from self-righteousness, or in this case, the the hard recognition that you can never be righteous enough. The breastplate of righteousness covers the heart in both, both places, which is why Paul says, put it on. Let it cover the centerpiece of who you are, your heart. And so I want to say that, let me put it this way, I don't want you to think that I'm not saying we shouldn't strive for righteousness in our lives. While we should strive to live righteous lives, our righteous deeds alone are not enough to please God. That's the nature of the gospel. This is what 2 Corinthians tells us. This is the fault of the Pharisee. Ironically, the ones who knew the most about the law, Jesus condemns as being the ones who knew the least about the law. They, in one sense, proclaimed it more confidently than anybody else, but misunderstood it more deeply than anybody else. And so when we trust Jesus like this and for this, we truly are made presentable again. We no longer live under the pressure of having to prove ourselves to anyone or anything in this world. And there really is a physical application to this. Because in Jesus, 
Think about this. When God says you are now wholly presentable to him because of the grace of his son, nobody can take that away from you and I. We get to live in that peace, not just in the way we see ourselves before Jesus or before God, but we also get to apply that to the places where there might be unhealthy acceptance pressures in our lives and our physical relationships because that can also be a highly abusive relationship. There can be places in life where we seek acceptance, but we don't get it. You want to talk about one of the things that can damage the human heart most deeply, it's that. And so when we understand righteousness from the angle of being presentable to God like this, it actually can breed a peace in our hearts in a, in a multitude of ways. It also allows us to identify where we are pursuing unhealthy forms of, of acceptance in other places. It can help us to understand where there might be distorted realities in our lives, where we seek in something that is not God, a fulfillment that only God can give us in Christ. It also allows us to encourage our brothers and sisters in Jesus when they struggle with this, when we see them maybe drifting in places, when they are looking to something that is not Christ, hoping it will fulfill them like Christ, we get to exhort them and encourage them and be their support structure in those times. In fact, if you're paying attention, you'll see this is a, a universally true reality for humans. Every person is struggling to, to find some kind of righteousness in this life. If we really believe that righteousness is, in the, in the understanding of us before God, is to be made presentable to God, acceptable to God again, righteousness becomes the tool. It's not hard to see how easily people can look for lesser forms of righteousness in their lives to be satisfied and maybe even be take advantage, uh, taken advantage of because of it, or be the people who take advantage of others because they misunderstand it. What I'm trying to say is every person is, is trying to be presentable to something or someone else in their life. That exceeds far beyond the dating era. And I want to give you an example of this, a great human evidence. Last week I shared with you sort of the moment God was clear with me about self-righteousness, and today I want to share with you a true story of when this reality became a, a truth in my life. For me, one of the, the first realizations that I was on the path to finding meaning like this in my life began when I was around 14 in a basement in Brooklyn. I did not know it then, but in God's grace, I can see it now. And this is an important thing to know because a lot of times when we understand a truth today, we really need to understand and apply that to the histories of our life. There's a, a, a book uh, that some of us have read individually and corporately uh, by a gentleman may, named Pete Scazzaro. It's about emotional health, spiritual healthiness. And one of the things he talks about pretty regularly is like these ideas of our origin points in life. And so a lot of what we are today has been shaped for good and bad by some of the experiences we had in yesteryears. And one of the beauties of, the G of Jesus' gospel is that a truth that might become an epiphany to you right now or in the days to come actually has the authority not just to, to speak to your heart today, but it can actually begin mending hurts that happened in the past. Because again, if we truly believe everybody is a sinner, if we believe that we all struggle with being far from God in areas of our lives, then what that means is we likely carry a bit of a pedigree from our history. And whether or not we let that pedigree own us is really the nature of what we do with the gospel. We can either be free because of Jesus, or we can sort of serve a false gospel. We can let our past and our histories dictate our future. And so the story I'm sharing with you now, I didn't recognize when I was 14. It actually took coming to Jesus in my 20s to begin unpacking a lot of this stuff. And that year, just before Thanksgiving, there were about 15 guys that I hung out with in two different groups of people. That year, just before Thanksgiving, a person I considered to be a pretty good friend of mine started spreading a rumor around one sphere of influence that uh, my family was so poor that my mom planned to cook a turkey that year for us in a microwave because she couldn't afford to turn our oven on, okay? That's what they were saying. Now, I know that sounds kind of funny, but it actually wasn't funny at all. For whatever reason... 
Something really dramatic happened that day. And while it was true, like I was the only kid that lived in an apartment, all of my friends were in houses, while it was true that the majority of my friends seemed better off than us, we never felt that way, and that had never really come up before. And so there were a couple of problems I had with this. First was the comment was like utterly untrue. Second, it violated like one of the rules of South Brooklyn. You can never like bring somebody's mom into a conversation. That's a really bad deal. And then, and then for some reason, it just struck a nerve in me so deep that it like rattled me. I can literally feel like the, the rage that came over my heart in that moment. And, and when, when I heard this, uh, I confronted them and I just said, hey, uh, I thought this would be like a natural thing. Like I'd say, this is not true. You need to stop saying this. Well, we were in the basement with a bunch of my friends and he just kept, kept saying the same thing, like goading me. And at some point it drifted from like anger to embarrassment and embarrassment back to anger. It was sort of like my emotional barometer, whatever that was, was spinning like in all directions. And I, as I listened to the words, something really happened. Like I can sort of remember my, my logic, my, my emotion being hijacked in that moment. This emotion built up in me, a swell of it, that I, I actually got f- furious. And then I began defending myself. I was so mad that I argued with him about the lie as if my life depended on it. And then it turned into a scuffle. And so years later, right, years later down the road, I'm wrestling with this idea that I am perfect because of Jesus. What, what does that even mean? Like, what's the application of that in our lives when I'm sort of trying to figure out how to strive and become something in the world? Years later, this teaching, perhaps more than any others, has been the most encouraging and hardest to apply, at least for me. I mean, I started asking myself, like going through these moments of my life, what would cause such a silly comment about a turkey, right, to strike such a deep nerve within me? Why? Well, I know now, I didn't know it then, but I know now that my presentability nerve was hit. That's exactly what happened. Looking back on that in my life, it became clear to me that that situation was indicative of many others that followed, countless others. And as I was coming into my own as an adolescent, as I was trying to become a young man, I was relentlessly crying out for some kind of righteousness. I wanted presentability. I wanted to be accepted wherever I was. And that is a universal desire of the human heart. We want to know we are loved and cared for, and we are valuable in the circles of influence we have with our wives or our husbands, our families, our friends, our children. Nobody, at least sane people, don't wake up and say, God, today, today, please make every person in my life reject me. Those are not the prayers we have. The human heart fundamentally needs something different because we're designed to be accepted and to live in the goodness and the grace of relationship with our Father in heaven. That's the origin of this. And so I simply wanted to be somebody. I wanted to be with people that recognized that. And that comment was like the antithesis of that, excuse me, antithesis of that. And so whenever I was denied that absolutely essential need of the human heart, I'd get that same feeling. And it wasn't until coming to Christ in my 20s that I was shown predominantly through other Christians that I actually, although I would feel that way, I didn't have to feel that way. I actually did not have to be broken by that pressure any longer if I would let Christ carry the weight. And I started to see that even if the world around me or you said that I was a nobody, there actually is an authority in the scripture that gives us the ability to deal with that. Because Jesus says we are somebody. In Jesus, we become presentable. And what's beautiful about that truth is to know and to love Christ means his, his love, his affection, his care for you, that never changes. Because his love and grace for you and I never changes. It isn't given to us and then, and then pulled back on a bad day. His love and grace is secure in our hearts. And so listen, if you're looking, what you'll see is people everywhere are turning to all kinds of things to feel presentable. 
This is true of our own lives, and it's true of the circles of influence that we are in. Nobody escapes this scheme of the enemy. But in God's grace, he makes us aware of it and gives us a piece of armor to stand firm against it. And although I doubt it will be a turkey slur for you, that's probably not going to get your motor running in a bad way, every person has some presentability nerve that when struck will rattle them at the core of their being. And what it proves is that we are seeking acceptance. We are looking to something, hoping it will make us happy like Jesus, knowing it cannot. That's at least what we should know. That's the goal. A couple of examples here. For some, it's when they seek this sort of approval from parents. This is such a common thing today, such a problem, which, which means if you, if you feel like and legitimately have had struggles with your parents, which is common, if, if your parents withheld approval from you or love and care, what can happen if we're not careful is rather than breaking that cycle when we raise our own children, we can, in very subliminal ways, transpose it to that situation. We no longer are freed from that in Christ. What happens is we, in subtle ways, begin to find our ultimate approval and validation in our children. We just transfer the problem to a different group of people and perpetuate it and might even perpetuate the acceptance dilemma that is created there. Because neither, no, nobody's heart, okay, whether it's how we view our parents or how our children view us or we view our children, nobody is meant to live under the pressure of that expectation. One of the ways we've tried to address this in our home is by being very clear to say, when we make errors, we just say we're sorry. We try. The, the recognition of saying, I'm sorry, or in my house I find with me, this statement comes out, I'll say, son, um, what I said was not incorrect, but the way I said it was, I find myself uttering that more days than I would prefer. I have to delineate between what is truth and the way I might have been a little rough with it. The idea here is that these pressures, they really can break us if we're not careful. Or for those of you that have made relationships the God of your world, this is another problem today. What happens here is we're so infatuated with relationships, whatever they may be or wherever they are, that they begin to take on incredibly idealistic tones. And what happens is it's, it's hard because sometimes there truly are, there's a need for us to discern an unhealthy relationship. That is a totally legitimate thing. But there are also times where the arbiter of what is unhealthy is the person with the ideals. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes a lot about this, summarizing some of his great writing. He says, the enemy of the, of the real in Christianity is the ideal. And the idea behind this is that if we are a people who are constantly reminding each other of what we're not yet in Jesus, then what happens is we just live discouraged under the weight of what we're not yet in Jesus. Yet, or, or on the contrary, if we actually encourage each other and exhort each other to be something in Jesus, the dynamic changes. There's a healthy pressure in a different way. And so what happens here is if we have these unhealthy ideals, and consequently those lead to unhealthy expectations, we place on our peers very unhealthy things. For others, it might be found in success in life. This is the person who puts on the breastplate of accolade and success. The way they try to cover up what is inside of them is by making it in life. They're overcompensating. And I'm not against success or accolade. We, we really believe uh, vocation in the sense of what we do. God has wired us to do very great things in the world, in rooms like this, in your offices, in the field, if you're turning wrenches, if you're in an HR, whatever you're doing, teaching, the idea of God wiring us to work and, and that being a blessing to the world is very important in Scripture. The challenge, though, is when we, we begin to remove the God of the work, the blessing that he gives us in work. And so what happens is the work actually becomes the God. And we then begin to put the breastplate of success over our hearts. And success is a fleeting idea. 
You have it some days and don't have it others. I mean, think about this. We have this sort of colloquial saying in America, this idea of keeping up with the Joneses. This is a complex in our country. Read any financial list about 10 things to avoid if you want to you know, retire well. And one of the things always on this list is avoid the Joneses complex. Avoid the, what they call lifestyle creep. And the reason people have lifestyle creep is because they might look around and see things that they don't have. And because of that, they feel less presentable in that moment. And they begin to reorient themselves around getting those things. And that can lead to great success, uh, maybe at the expense of other important things. It can also lead at times to like tons of credit card debt when you have a shell of these things, but you actually can't afford them. All kinds of problems in social circles here. All of them rooted in this presentability problem. When it comes to those of us in Jesus, those of us trying to determine if we even want to follow Christ or we're hearing a teaching like this today and trying to figure out how to apply it to our lives, here is sort of how I, I want to wrap up today. I want to leave you all with a thought to ponder, and it is literally the same thought I left you with last week. Uh, not because I didn't have anything else to say, but because I think this is important, very important. When it comes to Christians, those of us following Jesus, there are usually two pervasive understandings of how a person is made right before God, how we understand what makes us presentable to him. The first group, which we called last week the, uh, the I got it crowd, they say things when they hear a teaching like this. They'll say, um, I know what Christianity is, and I actually have righteousness down. I've read that multiple times. I can give you the Greek definition of it. Nothing bad with this, right? But they have this very cognitive or cerebral understanding of a word like this. They say, I know the theology of righteousness, and I study the Bible a lot, and I follow the rules, so I've, I've got faith. I've got all the evidences of things that show I'm righteous before God. And they will often say something like this, maybe not out loud, but in their, in their heart, I've actually literally heard this before. They'll say something like, thank you, Anthony, for, for this teaching, but I learned this righteousness sin stuff a long time ago. That was like eighth grade Sunday school stuff for me. And a teaching like this, this is important, but that's actually for the new Christians. I'm in the advanced Christianity class, so therefore um, I'll tune in next week. And what this person is really saying about how they see righteousness is, first, they really don't understand it, because I think if you really understand righteousness, God's righteousness, there's no way to be proud in this. There's a humble acceptance that comes out of it, but there is absolutely no way the human heart can get proud in here. They'll say something like, uh, or the way they'll understand righteousness is, I'm going to put together my own form of righteousness and hand it to God. I'm going to tell God, look at, who, look at me, look at all the things I do, and then I'm going to demand, because of all the things that I do, that he love me. God, look at how great I am. Look at how righteous I am. Now, this is why I've earned your favor. And what's sad about this is this person, the, the, the fundamental sort of underpinning of their belief is utterly wrong because they absolutely have misunderstood what it means to love and be loved by God. It's very wrong. And it leads to the problem of self-righteousness we talked about last week. And that's often cloaked in a sophisticated form of morality. Then there are other people who truly know the scripture teaches. Like they might say the same statements to a certain degree, but they have very different motives behind them. They'll say, like, I know the scripture teaches that stuff. Um, and, and what I'm learning is that Christianity is not me putting together my best version of myself and handing it to God as a ransom for his love. They're learning what it means to be freed by Jesus. Rather, they say, true righteousness is letting God apply Christ's righteousness to my heart through the cross. They recognize the need for righteousness. Both people do. They're just seeking different things to have it brought about in their life. And what this does is it creates two very different belief systems. The, the language, the vocabulary is the same, right? But the definitions are not. Two belief systems that are utterly different faiths that lead you down two very different roads. 
The first makes you proud and arrogant because it's self-righteousness. And it likely means a heart that is very far from God because you're trusting in yourself to deal with the greatest things that you deal with in life, the problems of sin, its effects, the days we are down in blue. God wants to be available to us in those moments, yet we sort of, for whatever reason, have tricked our minds into believing we don't need him in those moments. The second position, however, it really does make you a Christian because you're beginning to fundamentally understand what it means to be made right before God. It makes you a Christian because you've actually trusted in Jesus' goodness, grace, and righteousness for your salvation. And this is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we begin our faith at that moment, but we return to that truth in the days when we doubt it or distrust it. It's really an understanding and, and deepening our understanding of what Jesus has done for us. Not so that we could just know God, but so that we could know him more deeply for all the days of our lives. And so as we close, I leave you with a, a simple question that I pray you will think about now and certainly throughout the course of this week. What breastplate of righteousness are you wearing? We've all got something that we are using to protect the center of who we are. If today you've come to the conclusion that it's the wrong one, or maybe you've come to the conclusion that it's the right one, I, I pray you would really recognize the need to respond to that. If it's the right one, then find somebody and encourage them to, to taste the goodness of what you've tasted in Jesus. If you recognize it's the wrong one, then remember Jesus is a God of goodness and grace. And what he wants more than anything is to help you recognize, to help you remove what is a false breastplate and to put on what is a good breastplate, him. Let him do that for you today. Ask him for the strength to lay down whatever it is that is keeping you from knowing Jesus more deeply. And I leave you with this statement. The reason we do this is so that in Jesus, you and I might truly become the righteousness of God. If you want to have what 2 Corinthians promises us, that because of what Jesus has done, he has made us. We live now in, in his righteousness, and God views us in the same way. And what that means is we can truly become the righteousness of God. We can't earn it, and we certainly can't, uh, if we're in Jesus, we certainly can't damage it. The breastplate is his. It is unassailable. Let him put it on your chest today and let him lead you to new measures of fruitfulness and grace in your life. Pray with me.